Back to the Horror You Know podcast. I'm Darren, and along with Ian and Trent, we're just going to jump right back into the classic Steven Spielberg film, Jaws, and talk more about the stories that inspired it. All right, so this last story that I'm going to tell is uh, kind of the story that Quint tells a little bit in in the one scene where they're on the boat. Okay. Okay. And this is, they, they base that on a real story, so... Uh, during World War II, a naval ship named the USS Indianapolis. Indianapolis, I oh, yeah. that's where you're talking about. It was a heavy cruiser of the Pacific. It was fortunately uh, at sea during the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. It was commissioned in 1931, so it had been on sea for 10 years. Um, and in 41, it was actually out to sea and not in port, so that's the reason it was not destroyed. Uh, it served many military operations in its 14 years of existence against the Japanese forces in Papua New Guinea, the Aleutian Islands, Western Carolines, the Mariana Islands, and Okinawa. So the ship's greatest mission came in July of 1945 when the Indy, is what they called it, uh, was entrusted to uh, a top-secret mission. And what they w- were doing is they were taking enriched uranium, mm-hmm. okay, and other materials to make an atomic bomb to the island of Tinian. Okay, he actually calls it Tinian Delaney mm. in the movie. Uh, the U.S. had a new had newly made the bomb, and now it was time to use it. And they just they figured, you know, this is the only way we're going to defeat Japan is is basically use this weapon that right. nobody wants to use. Right. All right. Um, they left Pearl Harbor on July nineteenth and arrived in Tinian on July twenty sixth. It's only seven days. It set a it set a nautical speed record. That's how fast it was. Okay, so they got it there quick. All right. Now remember, this is top secret mission. Uh, all of the pieces were now there to create the little boy bomb, which is the one they used on Hiroshima, which was the bigger bomb. Gotcha. All right. Um, they used that on August sixth, nineteen forty five. So you're talking less than a week and a half. They put it together. Boom. Pretty quick. World War II was almost over at that time. Right. Boom. Uh, the Indies mission was accomplished, so now they were to head to Guam for a sailor swap, and that's basically where they swap sailors that have done tours of duty, bring them on, unload them, and then they take them back, and they get new training or get time off. Okay, right? makes sense. Okay. So they did a, a sailor swap, and on July 28th, they left Guam sailing for the Philippine Islands of late uh, for crew training, unknown to Captain Charles McVeigh the third. So remember that name. The third, Charles the McVeigh. <laughs> Lillian, <laughs> the Japanese submarine I fifty eight was lurking in the depths of the Philippine Philipp. How would you say that? Philippines Phil- Sea. Philippines. Filipino. Philip. Philip- Filipino. Filipinian Sea. <laughs> Filipinian. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Oh, the Philippinian Sea. Okay. When they spotted the Indy, they fired a Type 95 torpedo into the starboard bow and another into the middle of the ship. The ship became quickly top-heavy with the added equipment and crew members that they just picked up. Bad time to get some time off. You know, hey, right. we're going back. And then they get hit immediately. Um, so... Within 12 minutes, it upended and rolled over, lifting its stern into the air and quickly disappearing under the water. The nearest land was 280 miles away. So around 300-plus crewmen either died on impact or went down with the ship. So immediately, out of 1,195 people, 300 died immediately. Now, if you ever want to read an account of this, and I have read this, there's a book called In Harm's Way that tells the entire trip, and it's absolutely one of the best military or any books I've ever read in my life. And it talks about how it's so hot when they were out there uh, that luckily the people that survived were not in the lower cabin sleeping because it was so hot. Right. They were up sleeping on deck because it was like a huge ship, and 
some of them survived because of that, but also some of them died because of that because the bomb that hit in the middle, the torpedo that hit in the middle, blew the whole middle upward and outward, and they said the metal got so hot that it just seared their skin to the metal, and they drowned and everything else, you know? So it just... And and when they went in the water, it was like it burnt their skin off. So salt water hitting that. I mean, it was horrible, horrible. That sounds terrible. Way to die. So 300, 300 of them died. There were just under 900 men that went into the ocean that night. Luckily... Or unluckily, you know, how you could look at it, you know, there, right. there were survivors that went to the ocean. But here's a quote from Seaman Don McCall, which is obviously a survivor. Uh, they tell you how to throw your life jacket in first, then you jump in and get your life jacket. I looked over and there were too many guys that didn't have life jackets. So he was looking over the bow while it was going down. Titanic style, right? Right, gotcha. And so people were already in the water, didn't have life jackets. He yeah. knew if he threw it, they were going to grab it. Well, yeah. So he put it on him. Exactly. He put it on and strapped it to himself. He said, I strapped mine on before jumping overboard and went through the Navy procedure, which is to hold your collar and then toothpick in, basically. So he did that, toothpicked in. It felt like his legs were going down, but his top was going up. So it felt like it ripped him in half immediately. He said it was really violent. When I hit the water, fuel oil and seawater went down my throat. Now, you, this is something you don't even think about when you think about shipwrecks. Fuel oil, it's going to be everywhere. Yeah. Because it just blew up that ship. So these guys jumped in, and they just had black fuel oil all over them, right? Uh, I was gagging and spitting and trying to swim away from the ship, and it was going down. Getting away from the undertow of the ship was the first priority, but there were other immediate dangers. So no longer quotes here. This is just me talking. <laughs> Uh, the oil was everywhere, and that made a real threat of fire spreading throughout the troops. So if anything sparked while it was going down, it would have caught the whole surface Instantly, on fire. Yeah. So they're, like, trying to get out through all this sludge, swimming away, and it's, you know, the suction's pulling it down and pulling them yeah. down. And, it, you know, you can just imagine. You've seen right. Titanic. It does that in the in the movie. Well, that and, like like you said, if there's oil in the water, that water's probably so thick and hard to swim to. And oh, then you yeah. can't, you, if you go Horrible. under, like, to swim, you can't see. And it's probably, I mean, hypothermia could have set in, and too. And when you have the life jacket serious. on, it's probably harder to swim, to be honest with yeah. you. So he's in the water, you know, all these people are in the water, and there were a a lack of, another danger was there was a lack of life rafts and life vests and rations because they just dropped stuff off, brought more stuff back on. The military is not great about keeping standards back then, Mm -hmm. so they would, if they bring on weight, they'd have to take off weight. So sometimes they took off things or didn't put enough things on there, like life rafts right you know clearly so they would do stupid stuff like that uh so that lack of those things you know was all also something that was possibly going to kill them at this point right um drowning hypothermia in the cold night waters everything was a danger at this point to these people if they could survive the night in the cold water next day brought all new dangers plus some of those other ones because dehydration and extreme sunburn was a now real threat so the people described it after the second day that it was like if you put your head in a mirror and then put direct sun on you, how that mirror would just like bake your face. Right. So that's what being in the water was like. They Their skin was falling off. Duh. So you're talking about welts, blisters, boils, just dry mouth. They couldn't, yeah. you know, it was just horrible. Uh, so the lack of fresh water also cut caused some of the men to start drinking the seawater obviously and they would just go crazy they have to get a drink it's all around them so they'd drink it and that caused uh the delirium like saltwater delirium and one was overheard saying this is in the actual book in harm's way uh the india's down below boys they're giving fresh water and food in the galley then he started swimming down he either drowned or a shark got him because he never came back up yeah oh yeah by the way, that's the reason we're talking about this. The sharks. Yeah, we completely forgot about the sharks. <laughs> so if you didn't have oil blowing you up, you didn't have the ship blowing you up, you didn't yeah. have drowning, you didn't have hypothermia, you didn't have sunburn, you didn't die of thirst, the sharks started coming. So on the first day, they all, they all started coming. Uh, the sharks in the Pacific Ocean are numerous. So there's more sharks in the Pacific Ocean than any other ocean in the world, right? Uh 
where am I at? Crew member Tony King recalled, I'd, I'd see them swimming below me all the time for every day I was out there. The sharks never let up. We had a cargo net that had styrofoam things attached to it to keep it afloat for about 15 sailors on this. And suddenly 10 sharks hit, hit that and there was nothing left. It killed all 15. Gosh. This went on and on every day we were out there. So that's this guy's quote. Crewmen were drowning and being eaten at an alarming rate when the sharks would circle to investigate the crew would pound and scream. This action only brought more sharks. It was the most fearful. This is not this guy talking. This is me talking again. I should. I should. Yeah, give us the quote. I, I should do finger quotes, yeah, but nobody quotes. hears it. So uh, this action brought more sharks. It was the most fearful time of their lives. They didn't know if the rescue ship would come when they planned the arrival on July 31st. July 31st came and went. They were like, why the hell is nobody coming? Right. Now you got to remember, there's still some people in boats. They still have life rafts and stuff like that. Uh, the captain was still alive. Some of the main crew was still alive. And then a bunch of the just regular, sa- you know, E1 sailors and stuff that are all still alive. Um, but they sent distress signals out immediately, supposedly. All right. Nobody was coming. Before the ship went down, distress signals went out. Nobody raised an alarm about the secret mission through errors at headquarters. So because it was such a secret mission, nobody thought of it once it delivered the bomb. Like, Because they were supposed to come back. Nobody even thought about them at that point. Yeah, They already did their mission. Right. So then when the distress signals come out, they ignored them. Who is this? <laughs> <laughs> so three and a half days of terror, three and a half days of terror right. on this ocean ensued, right? Uh, until 1025 on August 2nd, a PV-1 Ventura plane, which was on a routine patrol looking for submarines or boats in the area, spotted the crew drifting in the ocean. They lowered some rafts and a radio transmitter to them and then flew out. Within hours, a massive rescue operation was in effect. Now, this is in the movie when he's talking about that, which is we'll bring it up later when we're talking about the movie. But he talks about this actual moment being the scariest moment of the whole ordeal because you didn't know when you're going to get rescued. Right. So it actually said. The stranded sailors continued to get ripped apart by sharks for the entire time waiting on boats to come back after the plane left. Only 316 of the 1,195-person crew made it out alive from that ocean. It remains to this day the single greatest loss of life at sea in American naval history. To this day, the Navy lost more people during that one event. Hmm. Now, even though there's evidence of distress signals, this, this is what happened after. Okay, after the people got off the boat, you know, came back to America and everything. Even though there's evidence of distress signals being given on multiple frequencies, so they'd give them on different frequencies for different boats to get, there is no evidence that anybody actually received or responded to any signals because they weren't looking for them. The military needed a scapegoat, however, because they always do. This is America, right? Mm-hmm. We'll all agree on that. Right. They always need a scapegoat somehow because America's infallible, they think, and we never do anything wrong. Right. So they needed a scapegoat. And in 1945, in November, they court-martialed Captain McVeigh III. All right. He was accused of failing to tell the crew to abandon ship and not sailing in a zigzag pattern during the night to keep from getting U-boated. Okay. The first thing on the charge, he was he was innocent of. They all said he tried to tell us to abandon ship. Second thing, he had to admit he didn't zigzag, and it was for I can't remember the exact reason they put in the book, but he didn't do the zigzag pattern the way they thought. However, he was convicted on that charge. The Japanese U-boat captain, which became friends with him later on in life after the war was over testified in his court-martial saying it would have never mattered if he would have zigzagged or not. We still would have hit them. So that shouldn't even be on the table. But that's what they court-martialed him for. Um, survivors didn't fault him. So the 300 people that got out, there was like, he was our captain. He saved our, a lot of our lives, blah, blah, blah. Right. 
but the families of the victims and the court of public opinion crucified this poor guy. He got a dishonorable discharge from the military, lost all of his pension. The papers villainized him. The victims would send him nasty cards and letters, would call his home. He had to, had to get rid of his phone eventually. Just horrible to this guy. He lived until 70 years old in 1968. Charles McVeigh III walked out to his back porch holding a toy soldier in one hand and a revolver in the other and shot himself in the head. Later in the 20th century, that's pretty, that's, that's brevity right there. I mean, there's no jokes there. I mean, that's just, that sucks. You know, this right. dude, he he didn't go down with the ship. He stayed with his crew members to try to help him, you know, and then still got, got crucified like for, it. Ship yeah. for it. And he delivered the bomb, which saved the war, really. It saved, killed a lot of people, but it saved a lot of people's lives. Right. That war would have went on and on, Yeah, you know. Uh, later in the 20th century, declassified documents revealed Naval Command had not only knowingly sent the Indian to harm's way, in harm's way, that's the name of the book, but also had received three separate distress signals and all three were ignored by the brass that received them. Really? The U.S. Congress finally passed a resolution exonerating McVeigh in 2000. In 2018, he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. So, posthumously for his family, they basically changed everything. But I mean, he had to live that life, you know. Right. He took he took those 900 men with him to his grave on his conscience. Jesus, you know, horrible story. That's a terrible story, yeah. Jeez, man, that was that was pretty heavy. So let's uh, story. let's get the fuck away from that and start telling some <laughs> jokes again. Hell, yes. All right. So now those are the stories behind it. Peter Benchley uh, wrote the wrote the book and immediately, like we said, Universal picked it up. Got a young Steven Spielberg, and he was off and running. So let's talk about the movie now, guys. You guys, one of you guys, want to kind of go into the plot a little bit? Uh. You're looking at me. Am I supposed to jump in? The well, we're just trying to get you involved. Cause like Darren, and I could probably talk about it for a while. What 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 do you think of when you think of jowls? I mean, I think those uh, cruel jowls. Jaws are cruel jaws. Cruel jaws. Don't be too cruel. We got to watch jaws. cruel jaws now. You know. Now that, we right? have to. Yeah, I'm so curious. Yeah, I feel like uh, I lost track because. Darren unloaded several stories on us there. It was one of those first two, obviously, that the movie drew most of its inspiration from. The whole, like, July 4th weekend and not wanting to shut the beach down because it was, like, their big weekend of, like, business or whatever. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was this the main story that drove the movie. Um, yeah, and you got to look at that story, not to cut you off, but shut the fuck up. <laughs> you got to look at that story two ways. So, A... Do you think he's right to shut it down or not shut it down for the matter? Like, so the mayor says, no, it's our busiest time. We need the revenue. We got We can't shut it down. The show must go on. But Sheriff Brody says, no, we absolutely have to shut it down because people are dying. So if you look at it one of two ways, you can kind of differentiate like which side you're going to jump on. But if I look at it both ways, I'm looking at it as, if you shut it down, you're losing revenue, obviously. If you don't shut it down, you're still losing revenue because somebody dies. And even the scene in the movie where nobody's going in the water because everybody's terrified. They're terrified. And he, and he, makes, he makes the one guy, the guy, hey, like, would you get your family and your kids and get yeah, in that water? Yeah, I thought water? that was like so, so Yeah, shitty. they're just like, like, oh, okay. They act like they're being put at gunpoint. Which, so. is, which is a bad casting for for that movie because that dude was like 70 years old and had like a five-year-old yeah it's like what that's, the fuck that's true too <laughs> it seemed like weird. older movies back then the parents always seemed really old oh yeah like the oh, yeah. woman that had the boy that died at the beginning like when she came into the movie was i was like you could be her grandma or be his grandma <laughs> that was a great scene though when she slapped the shit he did not know and i guess like she didn't want to at first his little aside you know pop-up video trivia yeah she she uh didn't want to slap him and he uh, told her like three times, you know, because there's multiple takes, just hit me, hit me. And then finally she just fucking laid him. And yep. I mean, it was shocking to him. And that was a great yeah. scene. I love that scene. Yeah. And it was really like, I don't know. You could feel the, 
when she was like, you knew this happened and didn't tell anybody kind of thing. And you like kind of felt for him because obviously he was trying to. Yeah, he wanted he wanted so bad to shut that down. It was his idea. He's like, we got to shut yeah. this down. Let's make signs. Let's immediately. But because he he's such a, such he's such a hero, though, he took it. You know, he yeah. took it on. He's like, I deserve it. You know? Just took it. So so the, let's talk about the first scene in the movie. Let's just go right from the beginning. The bush. We got the, the bush, bush, that I bush. Need to go which back is obviously in the poster. You need to go back and watch it. Yeah. That's a classic poster scene. There's but no that that comes out, and it, he, you know, Spielberg's a big Hitchcock guy. He yes. loves Hitchcock, and Hitchcock's thing is, you know, let's let's lull you into something, punch you in the face hard early, and then set back, and then build tension, build, build tension, tension the build, whole time, punch you again, so set back. And without every, showing anything, exactly. Every one of Spielberg's movies are like that now. Yeah, and I love that. And so, like the first first scene was like the college or the high school slash college kids partying, smoking weed, going skinny dip, and the dude's so drunk he can't even get it up probably, and he's like taking his pants off, <laughs> well, falls asleep on the away. beach. Yeah, and falls down the hill. The girl goes out there. She was actually a stunt woman, by the way. She was an actress stunt woman. Did not know that. And she, uh, they. To do it, they put like harnesses on both sides of her underwater with like like rope pulleys, and guys were in the water pulling her back and forth. There's a like an urban legend about it to where she broke her ribs, and those are real screams. That's not true, apparently. But gotcha. it, I used to tell my kids in, in class that you know because I thought it was a cool huh. break their fucking. So ribs. you're a big phony, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a big phony because you didn't even watch it in my damn class. Yeah, what I'd, were you doing? I. No, I don't remember that. Oh. Maybe I was sick that day. Yeah, right. Or maybe I was goofing off. Maybe, maybe. I was sick that day for a three-hour movie that I would have watched over three days. <laughs> Napping anyway. in the back, were you? We did goof off a lot. <laughs> or I did, I guess. <laughs> so so anyway, that's, I mean, that was a great scene. Like, uh, her scream seemed real. And what was cool about it is it did not show. It had like a stalker slasher type point of view, which is well before, I have to add, well before Halloween. Yeah. Well before Black Christmas, like by two to three years, and it was like it was like a killer. You know, you could see through its eyes coming up to her bush, <laughs> biting right. her in half, and then she goes under the water, gone. Loved that scene. Well, even like the aftermath where they finally like it was like the next day or whatever, and the one guy finds them, and then the other two run up. And like they don't even show anything; they just show you the guys like turned away and he's like reacting and then the other guys just like you know like it shows like a hand it shows a hand eventually but it doesn't show you the full aftermath but you can just tell from their reactions of like oh god this is messed up well even the next scene the the guy the the college kid that was there just like drinking the coffee just like in the next scene he's just Mm -hmm. shook yeah and Um, even the scene where what's his name uh is looking at her uh chair richard dreyfus Hooper. Hooper. Oh, Hooper, yeah. When he's yeah, when he shows up later and he's going over the body, he you could tell he's just like cuz he's like describing it all in his little recording or whatever he's doing and it's just like, like you don't see what he's heavy. looking he's at, like, but he's just like please like, don't give me smoke some water that in here. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. So yeah, going back to your point of not really showing much but still conveying that same horror without really seeing it. So, talking about ways that this movie was scary. I always talk about this in my class. What were some of the ways that you guys noticed that the director did to make this movie scary. I mean, and you just touched on one. It didn't show the killer. Yeah. The suspense. So, so not showing, am I cutting you off at all? You want to jump in on this? All right. So not showing, uh, and then what you do show, (laughs) don't make me do what that old woman do (laughs) backhand you. Uh, so you don't show the killer. You show close-up scenes. Uh, you build tension with the music, which was John Williams, I believe. John Williams. So you build you build tension that way, right? And like you said, very Hitchcock-esque. And then you splatter in like a kid screaming. Nobody paying attention because all this banter and all this stuff is going on in the background. And then when the uh, the camera pans over, there's just blood squirting out everywhere. Yes. That's what I think makes this a horror movie to me. I agree with that. I was going to say blood. There was a lot of blood, obviously, which yeah. is always unsettling. I think a lot of it is just like... But it was a lot of blood in small scenes, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a, a smorgasbord of like... It wasn't just a just a, a gore fest the whole time. Right. 
Yeah, bringing up that scene, um, that was a that was an interesting scene. The way he blocked it, because he started off with like these characters, and in the background you hear Chief Brody's wife talking to locals, and they were yeah. talking about we're never going to be, you know, considered locals because you're just not. You're from New York. You're not right. locals, and you're hearing all that banter and hearing people talking and everything, and you see a, a heavy set woman go into the water. You see a guy with a dog. You see the little boy and getting up from his mother yeah. and taking his. So you don't know who's going to die. Is the dog going to die? Is the boy going to die? Is the heavy set woman going to die? And then the the guy, as you said, was sitting there talking to Sheriff Brody. Like the way the camera angle was, like of him here, and then it was kind of like the shot over his shoulder. Yeah, to where like you should be paying attention to the background. Yeah. So and he's like, from his point of he view, he starts looking where, around the guy. Yeah, the yeah. old man with the like the saggy tits. The saggy tits comes up in the pale <laughs> the skin. Moves. He's like rubbing yeah. his tits on his belly. Yeah, <laughs> that guy probably had a five year old kid too. <laughs> so, uh, so like you, you get shit like that, and then, um, and, and then, and then to kind of like fast forward a little bit, like where the kids are over, like in the in the pond area, I think they called it, or, yeah. or whatever. So those kids are over there. And again, it's the same thing. It's a bunch of people sitting there. It's a bunch of background banter and everything. Uh, sheriff not paying attention. And then somebody runs up and like the girl's screaming about a shark. And nobody's taking her seriously. Nobody's paying attention. And even he's not fully engaged in it at first. And then he's just like, what? And he's just slowly walking. And then he just takes off running. And then they build Reali- up with the When he realizes again. his son is in the, yeah, in the pond. Yeah. So then and he, he goes freaks out. And they, First of all, the way the guy was talking to the kids was creepy anyway to me. Hey, you, you boys all right over there? <laughs> hey, you boys doing okay? Need, need some help? Need some help? Why would they need help? There's nothing going on over there, yeah. you creep. Why is he by himself in yeah, one little just, bitty robot? Hey, how's it going? This is where the kids hang out? <laughs> nothing weird over here, right? I'm a grown Spielberg, ass Spielberg, though, in that scene, both those scenes you were talking about, he used a lot of, uh, obviously we talked about Hitchcock, but he also used uh, Orson Welles' Um, natural cuts in that. So like, instead of actually having these weird, you know, fade out, fade ins or slide cuts or quick, quick, hard cuts, he used the, the thing where you'd have somebody, something passing in front of the camera, then you'd change lenses and make it closer, pass in front of the camera again, change closer, and then he'd pull back out. So he kept on bringing you in and out. And then he just blew people's minds with that really awesome uh, dolly zoom that he did. So that yeah. was that was like really cool that he did that dolly zoom and that that you know that brought all those former directors into the foreground again. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, there's. I mean, we can go on and on about everything that that he did, shot for shot, uh, the way that he built the horror, the way that the, the score that John Williams did. Um, just everything about it is just absolutely amazing. And then you factor in the fact that like like i said i feel like it's a horror movie but it's based on the book which is now based on all these stories that i never knew about and it's nice to dive into like the like i said the deep dive of everything pun but, intended pun intended but here's the thing the book from you know i've never read it have you read the book yes i i hear like it's a it's you know it's a good book it's a bestseller like you said but at the same time like spielberg didn't like certain aspects and didn't want to incorporate in the movie. Like Hooper's character was apparently a shit bag in the book. Had sex with Chief Brody's Chief wife. Chief Brody's wife, yeah. <laughs> did you know that? Yeah. No. Yeah, I did not. So in the book he was he was a sleaze bag. He does that. And I'm pretty sure in the book he doesn't make it out of the shark cage, right? No, he dies. Well good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like an instant karma type thing. But um uh yeah they had so many people in mind to play like these different characters. That's what I love reading about is like who, who was originally going to be what and how uh, they wanted Robert Duvall to read for Brody, but Robert Duvall said, no, I'd rather be Quint. And I was just like, yeah, he's more of a Quint character. It's yeah. Robert Duvall. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with, uh, was it Robert Shaw that, that uh, ended up being uh, Quint? There's nothing wrong with him whatsoever. He, he played it perfectly. The nails on the chalkboard was <laughs> infuriating. So I think... Uh... I think bringing bringing some of the stuff up that you you were just talking about about backstories between the book and the movie, um, kind of made 
Spielberg changed a lot of things. Right. And he didn't change them necessarily. He had them changed through writers and this and that. You know, right. they re- rewrote different parts of it and it wasn't working. And Spielberg was like, you know, what are, what are we going to do about this? And let's change this, you know. And he, he had writers help him. Uh, but the main thing that really screwed the movie up, but actually in turn worked for the film, was Bruce, Brucey, the shark itself. They made three of them. One had a false bottom to where they could run the hydraulics from the bottom. You could see the top. Right. And the other two had the sides out of it so they could run it from the side and go okay, left to right. Uh, but they didn't realize because they wanted to do it on a soundstage once they built these things. They were very expensive. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want to do that. He wanted authentic. And he looked for somewhere that they could be out in the ocean, but it'd still be shallow they found right. Martha's Vineyard. I read that they wanted to use real sharks and train them. I'm like, yeah, they how tried would you, to train how sharks. How would you do that? <laughs> I forgot about that. They tried yeah, to, they were insane. one to try to train sharks, and they realized, oh, you can't do this. Yeah. Oh, wait, you can't train a shark? But, uh, no, you can't train a fucking shark. So once they got these hydraulics Have in, you they tried. <laughs> Actually, yes. They realized that, uh, salt water screwed up the hydraulics. So Bruce never worked uh, almost the entire time on the production. So he was trying to find creative ways to show Bruce, but not to show Bruce. Now, you were talking earlier when I was talking to you about the shark not moving or its head sitting there. That's because they couldn't get it to move. So it was it was a technical error, but they used it to their advantage. And it almost became like a slasher serial killer unknown. Right. And by not seeing the shark as much, to me, it makes it a much better movie because you look at that shark at the end, it's kind of hokey looking now. Back then it was scary, but now it's kind of hokey looking a little bit. If you would have saw that all the way through the movie, I would not even like this movie that much now. I mean, it definitely would take that suspense away, that fear of the unknown, you know, what you can't see, I think it's even scarier. Well, like the perspective of the shark, like coming up and like you see the person like flailing up on the board, like, and then underwater the camera is coming up and it's supposed to be the perspective of the shark. And like, I feel like that's more terrifying than like you said, seeing the actual shark, which didn't look that good to begin with. But even if it was like very like well done CGI, it's still better to build the suspense than to show the actual yeah. Well, plus, uh, also, you don't itself. you don't know how big the shark is either until later on. So no, I think that no, you don't. That hidden detail works in its favor. And too. they describe it a couple of times, but they argue about it. Yeah, like, one said like twenty feet, and then the cap, the boat captain was like, "No, it's twenty five And then like so. Well, when Hooper was describing like how big the jaws on it would be, like the mouth would be, you know, like this big, and then the one they bring in was nowhere close to that. Right, the first one they killed. Yeah. yeah. The cruel jaws, the fake the jaws. jaws. <laughs> oh my God. I got to see those immediately. All yeah, right. I don't know. I, I, oh, I'm sorry. I was, Go ahead. I just think anything that's kind of real like that that can happen is always going to be freakier, you know? Because I mean, I don't know about you guys. I don't get in the ocean a lot, but like if I know there's a jellyfish in my vicinity, I'm getting out of the water. So like <laughs> I know that I can't handle like if there was yeah. a I don't even like <laughs> fish being near me. Well I'm so I'm, I'm telling out, you a personal story. I'm older than both of you guys, right? People don't know that. Now you know it. I'm <laughs> oh, older knew. than them. So when I was little and this movie came out, I actually watched it in the drive in. And it was like three years after it came out originally. So this movie was such a big blockbuster. It was the first blockbuster. I mean, it totally changed the industry. And it was so big, they released it the next three summers, right? Right. Gotcha. So I watched it in 1978. And I watched it at the theater, or at the drive-in. The drive-in. And I was so scared and terrified of that movie after I watched that movie for the first time that I was scared to go fishing with my dad at night at that point. We used to go fishing all the time, and there was this dock on this big lake, and the dock would bring our, our boats up or whatever. had, like, underwater lights near it, and it had yellow, like, glow to it, like a greenish-yellow glow. Yeah. And it reminded me of that scene where Hooper's, like, they're fishing out that shark's tooth, and that's the scariest scene in the movie to me, you know? Yeah, to a lot of people. find that boat. That made me jump, mainly oh, yeah. because of the sound cue. Like yes. I was watching it with the headphones, and I oh, like yeah. I looked away for a second, and all of a sudden that like jump scare. Yes, <laughs> and it definitely it, it scared the shit out of me. So I didn't even want to like 
fish at that point. I was scared. There were people that were scared of swimming in pools at night. Well, I was yeah. going to say, did because it famously it keep people from going to the beach a lot at that yeah. time? Yeah, it like worked like in that. reverse almost on tourism. Yeah. And all it also actually like, I, I watch Shark Week like we all do, right? Yeah. And they said that that was one of the worst things that ever happened to the ecosystem because that got people overfishing sharks as sport at this time. So after watching that movie, they just started hunting sharks all the time and they decimated actual like species of sharks because <laughs> of this sharks. one movie. But now it's worked in reverse because now it's inspired people to like Shark Week and now they're learning about sharks in the e- ecosystem. So now yeah. they're coming back. So it's it's really weird how it's kind of ebb and flowed from that one movie. Well, at the and same it's, time, less shark, less shark attacks, right? If you wipe out an entire species of sharks... You can't be, or you just piss one. them off even more, and then there's <laughs> well, they don't revenge. like seek out revenge. Well, until you get to Jaws' revenge, which yeah. was the most ridiculous That's fucking ridiculous. movie ever made. Like I say, what did he have revenge for? He died, or, or it inspires Sharknado series. Yeah, Ooh. you don't know the revenge. I didn't you know see the backstory it. on that. No, I didn't see any. Is it supposed to be like a distant, like relative of the shark? Hunt. No, listen, you, it gets crazier. You killed my father. No, pretty much. <laughs> That's what it's like. The, yeah, no, pretty much the shark goes after, I think it was Brody's, like, one of Brody's kids, wasn't it? <laughs> this actually sounds amazing. As a grown man. Let's do our next episode on Jaws It's literally called Jaws the Revenge. That's the third one, right? Is that the third one, the I believe? Fifth, fifth one. Oh, Is it the fifth? The third one was in 3D. The fourth one, I don't remember what it's called, but Jaws 5 was actually the revenge. They had five of them. Should have stopped with what cruel, was the three? Should have stopped the with cruel jaws. The, the aquarium and had like Dennis Quaid. It's three, in it. yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up what I was gonna bring up earlier. This is uh, this is kind of a theory that's been put out there, but I buy into it, and I've really did a deep dive on this. Okay, yeah, bring the deep dive back. Yeah, when they wrote these characters, if you look at this as socioeconomic class system, political system, and character study in this movie. It's an amazing thought process to go through. Now hear me out, okay? The Chief Brody character, played by Roy Schneider, he is what would be considered an everyday unsung hero, everyday man, right? Yeah. Politically, probably in the middle, because he makes decisions, but he bases decisions on others' wants and needs. He's a family man, but he also cares about his town. So he's just an everyday, middle-of-the-road guy. Right. Bring in the mix. Quint, which is the next major character we see, right? Quint, out of the three, and I'll I'll call him like the the triangle, whatever you want to call him. Tripod. Tripod. <laughs> so Quint's the second guy. Scratching. First time we see him scratching the board, giving that big speech. Can you do any of the speech, Trent? I can't. I got to go back and watch it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll catch him for three. Yeah, I don't remember how much the price. I'll catch him for three. I'll kill him now for, for five. For ten. <laughs> ten. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got it. You got it. All right. So, uh, so he does that big speech. That's the first time we see him. Cocky son of a bitch. Obviously, working class hero, blue collar, right? Would be considered right wing conservative. Right. Hooper comes in next. Cocky, cocky a little bit, right? He's a little cocky dude. Yeah. Comes in. Kind of a rich boy, obviously. He's a rich boy. Uh, a little bit spoiled. Basically big equipment himself. Big into learning. Yeah. Big into science. College educated. Obviously, Quint was not. Roy Schneider's right in the middle of Chief Brody. This guy's obviously left-wing liberal. All about peace, love, saving the environment. This other guy's like, let's shoot it, kill it, and eat it. (laughs) So you literally, in this one film, have the dynamic of a middle-of-the-road person, a person on the right, and a person on the left, politically. Socioeconomically as well. Kind of poor, kind of rich, kind of in the middle. It all works perfectly with our, not only back then, but our current systems of government and the way class is here in America. 
you got a shark coming in that's unknown, devastating the economy. And that's what the people are worried about at first. The guy in the middle of the road is practical. He's worried about his family and the, and the people themselves. This guy's just worried about his reputation, killing something, and getting money for it. This guy's worried about studying it, not really, you know, wanting to kill it. You know, he doesn't even mention killing the shark at first, right? Right. They do not get along and butt heads. He's always trying to get them not to butt heads, right? So the whole thing is like this weird... I mean, it, they mention stuff like that over and over in the movie, if you think about it. They talk about how they're islanders. These yeah. people are out-of-towners. They're never going to be like them. You know, and it's always this class struggle with the economy pulling apart in the middle, right? So you can think about it like, what is the shark? Is the shark, could be disease, could be COVID right now. It could be the economy back in the 70s. It could be the Vietnam War. You know, it could be any kind of issue. So even though it's a shark movie and it's a, a horror film, it's actually, if you look at it, it's it's like Rocky. Rocky was a boxing film, yeah. but it was a love story. Right. Not only between Rocky and, and his girl, but Rocky and his manager. Yeah. It had heart, right? Right. This movie has more going on than people realize when you watch it a few times. It has all of those elements I just mentioned. So it's kind of an interesting movie. It's a character study somewhat, you know? They can't even, like, swallow their pride hardly at the end. Like, he's like, I'm going to drag it into shallow waters and I'm going to drown it. You know, he does that, and then the boat blows up, and then they're fucked, you know? Because yeah. it's pride. He won't, he won't admit when he's wrong. Right. His pride kills him Yeah. in the end. Hooper, which in the book died, they saved him because they, I guess they taped some shark stuff in Australia and they loved how a real shark actually did that to the cage. So they decided to have him escape, but it worked for the character study because he was prideful, but he was also realizing maybe my shit's not going to work. Maybe the science is not going to help it. You know, his stuff didn't work. Now we're trying my science. It might not work, and it didn't. Right. The only thing really science-wise that saved him was his scuba tank, right? Yeah. He just hid like a little chicken shit down in the rocks. <laughs> oh, you know. Just cowering. So who won out? Who won in this movie? No, the rogue guy. The practical guy that yeah. doesn't wasn't blustery, didn't speak out all the time like you see on social media now. The common sense person won. Well, yeah, I agree with you, but at the same time, I feel like at the end, he throws a little bit of all of the elements into one. The science of shooting the tank, the aggressiveness uh, of shooting it, the aggressiveness of shooting it, which would be, you know, yeah. your Quint, and then his rationalized thinking of, I got to get to here, he's there, I got to do this. So all three are kind of incorporated into one. It kind of comes full circle if you look at it that way. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. It's like it shows you both sides. And shows you how the only way we're going to beat this is to pull together. Yeah. So whatever that fucking Not shark is. pulling everybody out of the water, we have to kill this. I feel thing. like I just told everybody to go get shots for COVID. But I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Subliminal I'm just messaging. In our... I'm just kidding. But really. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing that's going to save you from shark attacks. No. Anyway, that that's kind of my take on it. I've heard like a similar theory to that, but I kind of went deep into it. I, I'm... I that probably went deep. a little far. That was pretty deep. deep. But, it, but yeah. it makes sense, right? It does make sense. You went past the breakers. Uh, <laughs> help! <laughs> Over there in employee waters. So what was... Uh, what What's your final take on this? Uh, the stories and the movie and how they compared and Trent? I mean... I don't... <laughs> my final take is that, you know, this is... I don't know. It's 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 real. Like you could go out in the ocean and get eaten by a shark, and that's freaks me out. You know, like I don't go to the ocean. We don't live by the ocean. I've been by the ocean maybe a couple times in my life. But, but there is some realism in, in, in the, the real. Story. I mean, yeah, it's not like it's like you know, 
Freddy Krueger, which I know that's another movie we're going to talk about on another day, but it's not like some mythical being. You know what I mean? It's a shark. It's a wild animal. It's no different than some of these man versus wild movies. You go out in the woods and get eaten by a bear or something, you know? You're giving up seasonal spoilers now with the Freddy Krueger. However, or am I leaving leaving breadcrumbs? More reason for you to uh, tune into us because I I see where you're going with this. And yeah, it's ten times more scary when, it, when there's realism on it. Now, obviously, with Hollywood, they kind of boister it a little bit, but well, not only there is that realism there. Not only realism, but the fact that you know this movie takes place in the summer, and a, and it it takes you to a place where you're supposed to be happy and having fun. You're on the beach with your family. Right. It's Fourth of July. You don't think about all these horrible things like you're out there. You know, it's almost kind of like. Not quite like Halloween, but similar in the fact that you're out on Halloween night having fun and you're getting murdered by a masked crazy person. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. just kind of, it takes you to this place where you're supposed to be in a, a, a good state of mind and a happy state of mind, but it, it throws all this horror in there too. And so, I don't know. And we have, we have as humans a primal fear of the ocean anyway. We don't oh, know absolutely. what's really down There's there all the so time. so much undiscovered part of the ocean. And to yeah. me, that's absolutely fucking terrifying. Yes. And, and that's like more. and that's like deep, just vast, <laughs> open ocean. And we're yeah. still talking like within sight of the beach, a shark can get you. So, you know, you're not even that far out there, really. Ian's eyes, he went, I want to know and more. I want to know more. <laughs> I want to know the unknown. Because they say, what, we've only explored like, what, like 3% or something shitty, like crazy like that. So my only yeah. oh, like we only know so much about the ocean. So you add that into the aspect that you're talking about. Well, the Mariana we Trench has a Meg in it for sure. I mean, come on. Oh, we watched the Meg. I watched the Meg. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's your story. Actually. We're talking, we're talking horror, and we're talking the true crime slash true stories behind yeah. it. So I think this is a perfect starting point as far as you know, Definitely. real life horror. The first blockbuster by Stephen King or Stephen King, Stephen Spielberg, the master. Honestly, you you bring up Stephen King like like on an accent, but at the same time, you're not kind of wrong because you know Stephen King is known as the master of horror. But I think after this movie, Spielberg was kind of known by the crew members the master of horror. I think uh, did you read that the last day of shooting, he didn't even want to be on set because he thought everybody was gonna be really fucking mad at I think he made a joke like, yeah, they'd probably drown me if I was there. And I think traditionally now, from what I read, every movie he shot, he wasn't there for the final scene because of that. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's kind of crazy, but at the same time... He like, thought everybody hated him. Yeah, and well, I guess movie. he put everybody through hell, but I don't think it was yeah. like necessarily something he was trying to do. It's just... It, it's kind of like, and I hate to make the comparison, but like you said, the USS Indianapolis... They're out there, they're stranded, they're doing all this. And I know that's not really a comparison, but at the same time, like, mentally, he's fucking a lot of people up yeah. <laughs> during the, during the yeah. making of this movie. He wanted to um, make it as authentic as he could. I mean, Yeah, and I think, like, at one point, like, didn't somebody, like, almost get drowned by one of the mechanical sharks or yeah. something? Yeah. Like, there's so many, like, backstories on this, and so many people were just, I mean, there was so much tension on set the whole time, and... They're like a hundred days over on 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 their um, schedule, and uh, they're way over budget at this point. They, they, there's no way, like we're we're not gonna be like this is gonna be a disaster. And like you said, it becomes one of the first blockbusters of all time, and I think that's that's pure. So insanity. so what what's your final take? Did you like the movie? I love the movie. I always have liked the movie, and uh, that was just watching it from a young kid's perspective. It was terrifying, obviously, as a child, but the more I watch it, the more I like it. And then when you start incorporating, like, if I like something so much, I personally go to research everything afterwards. I don't know if you guys are the same mm-hmm. way. but I, I let my wife do it. She does it over on the couch, me and a Karen. But <laughs> she tells me go. what's going to happen before it's up yeah, there she's looking at yeah. her phone. Oh, you know, the killer's actually going to be the shark, <laughs> yeah. right? So, <laughs> spoiler alert. So, yeah, uh, the point I was actually trying to make was if i see something i'm like well that's really fucking cool i wonder how they did this and this and i'll go back and research that and uh, that's how i find out a lot of the backstory stuff on on all this shit so in conclusion i think it makes it 10 times better knowing all this extra stuff and then once you know that i'll go back and like watch it again so i can appreciate everything that i just read about that's just me personally all Some right. people just watch documentaries and stuff on it, which I think there is a documentary on this. Probably. <laughs> Good job, Trent. 
Probably. You're doing amazing. <laughs> so like me. I'm- All right. So we're going to wrap this up. Uh, I give uh I give uh, props to myself for doing 30,000 pages of research. As and you should. Not yes. even using half of you it. You carried this whole episode. That's right. But uh, our next episode is going to be by Sir Ian over there. That We're knighting you already. It'll be part, part du. Part du. And you're going to do what? Uh, the Conjuring is going to be the first Conjuring is what it's going to be uh, based on. All right. uh, we're going to dive into the movie. I'm going to dive deep, which doesn't have the same effect since it's not in the waters. But I'm going to deep dive into the story uh, that the family is claiming is really, really accurate. The movie versus you know the real story, which uh, I kind of think is a little bit of bullshit. But we'll dive into that when I, when I dive into this Conjuring story. He's given a spoiler before the spoiler. That's right. I like it. And I'm telling you, so I'm, much not, I'm not I'm not even I'm not even raking the brim here. That's not a that's not a saying either, but <laughs> just just know raking the this, brim. This is the tip of the iceberg. Like I'm 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 giving you preludes. It's it's gonna we're we're gonna get into some there's some crazy shit to this story. Like I know um statistically the movie did phenomenal and that's great because overall filmmaking was it's 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 a really good movie but the story i don't know if you guys have ever heard the original story from the perspective of the family it's fucking bonkers it's insane i can't wait so if you guys can't wait uh make sure you guys uh check us out uh for the next episode when this is released and tell your friends uh hopefully we have social media going by then so we'll see (laughs) all right i'm darren (laughs) <laughs> yes you are that is a fact so <laughs> you are well you were until <laughs> you choked to death over there I started to talk and then I had spit in my mouth <laughs> oh gosh oh gosh you are Darren alright so that is our show um, thanks for listening and uh, hopefully you check us out for our next episode this has been the Horror You Know podcast in the dead of night when the moon is high Shadows dance, the evil will rise. The world between the living and the dead is thin.